Okay, let's go ahead and jump in. We get to go to London today and Narnia, two places today, chapter 7, 8, and 9. So, and I'm going to spend a little more time in chapter 8. Chapter 7, what happened at the front door? Um, Remember this last chapter ended with Letty turning around and there was was Jadis at the front door. So uh, you see that Jadis leaves. She goes on a rampage uh, through London. I'm sure that was exciting. Again, you're in, you're in Edwardian London, so in the first couple decades of the 20th century, the early 1900s. Anyway, she goes on a rep- rampage through London. Uh, one of the things I want you to notice about this chapter is you begin seeing a little emphasis on Diggory's love for his mother. Um, that's going to come into play uh, more so a little bit later in, in the book. And particularly when we get a little bit later in the book and uh, we, we really deal with uh, Diggory's mother's illness, I will um, do a little bit with C.S. Lewis's mother's illness. Uh, one of the greatest impacts on his life was the death of his mother when he was nine years old. And um, I, I'll, we'll talk more about that as we get more into um, Diggory's mother, uh, Mabel Kirk. Again, Diggory's mother is the other sibling of Letty and Andrew. So uh, you begin getting greater hints of his um, love for his mother. I love the image on page 94 by Pauline Baines. Um, you may not know what a handsome cab is, but that's a picture of one. Uh, that was the kind of cabs you had running around London at the turn of the 20th century. And um, Jadis, um, as she's going on her rampage through London, she uh, commandeers a handsome cab, and you see how she's how she's um, driving it. She's standing on the top. So she's on that rampage. Um, you get introduced to uh, another major character in this book. Uh, later in this chapter, you get introduced to Frank. You're going to come to learn Frank's wife's Helen. Uh, you learn um, that Frank uh, has a strong Cockney accent. Um, so if you get an audible version of this book, uh, whoever reads it usually does a pretty good job reading uh, Frank in a Cockney accent. Uh, in case you don't know what a Cockney accent is, um, it, it originally it meant that it was the people who lived within uh, the sound of the bells of Mary LeBeau, Church Mary LeBeau, St. Mary LeBeau. Uh, but it's the east end of London, uh, very much a working class neighborhood. So uh, what Cockney became is sort of a working class dialogue or dialect of the English language. Um, so C.S. Lewis's um, dialect would have been very different from a Cockney dialect. Uh, C.S. Lewis's dialect was, uh, of course, English with Irish roots and as an Oxford scholar, but you do get a taste for uh, Frank's Cockney accent. Uh, he's the cabbie. He's the cabbie. And uh, if you haven't read ahead, you're going to be, if, when you do, you're going to be uh, surprised to see who Frank becomes at the end of the book. But you get introduced to Frank here. Uh, because you see on, on pages 96 and 97, you see all the people that are sort of chasing Jadis. 
and Jadis um, makes his way back, makes her way back uh, to the house. Uh, you, you notice in the other sketch we looked at first on page 94, you, you see the lamp post uh, there beyond um, Jadis driving the handsome cab. The light post is lamp post is going to become more and more prominent here too. Um, so uh, yeah, Andrew just wants some alcohol. That's kind of Andrew's thing. Uh, the, the, the mad scientist. Uh, anyway, chapter 8. Chapter 8, you see that Jadis is wielding the bar from the lamppost. Uh, and in chapter 8, you see that um, Diggory, who again, you want to see the goodness of Diggory and Polly and Frank and Helen um, you want to see their goodness over against the, the evil of Andrew and Jadis. Um, very, very different worldviews. Very, very, very different worldviews. Very different ways of viewing people. Of course, Jadis loves to call everybody her slave. Uh, very different ways of treating people. Um, so Diggory is going to try to rescue London by getting Jadis out of London by uh, using uh, the rings, the yellow rings, to um, escape London with Jadis. Um, so you see them go to the wood between the worlds. Uh, then you see them go to another world. But you see them go to the wood between the worlds. And um, again, you've already learned you know, about these rings. You don't have to be touching the rings. You just have to be touching somebody who's touching the rings. So here they go, and Frank's with them. Andrew's with them, Jadis is with them, and uh, Strawberry. Who's Strawberry? The horse. Uh, you're going to learn to love Strawberry, too. Strawberry will receive a new name. Um, anyway, so here they're all hightailing it to the wood between the world. He's just wanting to get Jadis out of London, but they all kind of go together to the wood between the world. Um, just a couple things. Look on page 101. I suspect your editions like mine. Um, if you if you haven't figured it out by this point, C.S. Lewis wants to say to you uh, in the second full paragraph from the bottom of the page, the cabbie, cabbie, that's Frank, the cabbie, however, obviously the bravest as well as the kindest person present was keeping close to the horse. Uh, you're going, yeah, you're going to love, you're going to love Frank. Hopefully, you'll love Strawberry and learn Strawberry's new name and learn. Um, who Frank and Helen, his wife, become. So uh, they go to the wood between the worlds, and then they um, jump in another pond, and they end up in an empty world, end up in a world without form and void. Your mind should go back to the book of Genesis. Um, I'm quoting the book of Genesis. They end up in a world uh, void, without form, kind of an empty world. Uh, you can go to Genesis chapter 1, um, and you kind of end up in this world, this rather an empty world. And then what you get to see, and this is a really memorable section of all the Chronicles, you get to see, and I hope you can kind of hear, um, Aslan creating Narnia. Uh, this is the book of Genesis for the Chronicles of Narnia, and Aslan's being created so look on page 104. Let's look a little bit. Look at a, at a little bit of the text. 
104, um, second, third full paragraph from the bottom. Again, it's an empty world, kind of nothing. Paragraph starts, and really it was uncommonly like nothing. Notice the word nothing there is capitalized. There were no stars. Um, pay attention to the stars. We're going to say a little bit about that when we get toward the end. There were no stars. It was so dark that they couldn't see one another at all. And it made no difference whether you kept your eyes shut or opened. Under their feet, there was a cool, flat something, which might have been earth, and was certainly not grass or wood. The air was cold and dry, and there was no wind. My doom has come upon me, said the witch, in a voice of horrible calmness. Uh, watch how the creation of Narnia affects uh, Andrew and Jadis compared to the others. My doom has come upon me, said the witch, in a voice of horrible calmness. Oh, don't say that, babbled Uncle Andrew. My dear young lady, pray don't say such things. It can't be as bad as that. Ah, cabman, my good man, you don't happen to have a flask about you. A drop of spirits is just what I need. Yeah, on so many levels, we don't like Andrew. Now then, now then, now then came the cabbie's voice, of course, in a cockney accent, a good, firm, hearty voice. Keep cool, everyone. That's what I say. No bone, bones broken, anyone. Good. Where there's something to be thankful, he's a grateful person. Probably one of the poorest people in the story, but he's grateful. Where there's something to be thankful for straight away, and more than anything, more than, more than anyone could expect after falling all that way. Now, if we've fallen down some diggings, as it might be a new station for the underground that was being built at that point in history. Someone will come and get us out presently, see? And if we're dead, which I don't deny it might be, well, you got to remember that worse things happen at sea, and chaps got to die sometime. And there ain't nothing to be afraid of if a chaps led a decent life. And if you ask me, I think the best thing we could do to pass the time would be to sing a hymn. Yeah, I like Frank. He's grateful. Uh, if they're dead, that's okay. If they've fallen into a hole, that's okay. Uh, so he says, sing a hymn. I want you to notice the hymn that they sing. Uh, and he did. He struck up at once a harvest thanksgiving hymn, all about crops being safely gathered in. Okay, church, what hymn is that? Come, ye thankful people, come. Yeah. That's uh, Bring the Harvest Home. That's one of our Thanksgiving hymns. So here he is in a dark nothingness hole, and he may be dead, and sort of like Job in the belly of the fish, he sings a hymn of Thanksgiving. Yeah, I know some people who need to take some lessons from old Frank. Uh, they're always negative about the good stuff in their life. And here's Frank, uh, perhaps in a really bad spot, but he's leading them and singing a, a thanksgiving hymn. It was not very suitable to a place which felt as if nothing had ever grown there since the beginning of time. But it was the one he could remember best. Yeah, the hymn he could remember best was the thanksgiving hymn, expressing gratitude. Uh, he had a fine voice, and the children joined in. It was very cheering. Uncle Andrew and the witch did not join in. You could have expected that, right? Yeah, they're not going to join in on, on the hymn singing. Uh, turn the page over. Let's continue to see what's 
happening here um, as this um, empty, void, without form world begins to take form and begins to get filled with something. Uh, Last paragraph on page 106. In the darkness, something was happening at last. A voice had begun to sing. Now, I hope you caught when you read this, uh, the way Aslan creates is he sings Narnia into existence. Now, again, you know the Bible, I hope. If not, I recommend it to you. You know the Bible. God, God spoke creation into existence by his word. Just his word created. Here, uh, Aslan's word is singing, but it's still the same sort of thing. He's just speaking creation into existence. The voice had begun to sing. It was very far away, and Diggory found it hard to describe from what direction it was coming. Sometimes it seemed to come from all directions at once. Sometimes he almost thought it was coming out of the earth beneath them. Its lower notes were deep enough to be the voice of the earth itself. Um, This is your introduction to Aslan here in The Magician's Nephew. Now, again, C.S. Lewis is assuming you've read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Ignore the number one that's on the front of this book. He's assuming you've read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and you should be getting excited because you know the more you hear about this voice that's singing Narnia into existence, uh, you know who it is. You're going to eventually just be told who it is, but you're, you're getting excited uh, because you know, you know who's finally showing up here in The Magician's Nephew. Um, There were no words. There was hardly even a tune. But it was beyond comparison the most beautiful noise, the most beautiful noise he had ever heard. It was so beautiful he could hardly bear it. The horse seemed to like it too. Well, I'm not surprised by that. We like strawberry. And it's going to be amazing to watch what strawberry becomes. The horse seemed to like it, too. He gave the sort of whinny a horse would give if, after years of being a cab horse, which is what he's been, it found itself back in the old field where it had played as a foal and saw someone whom it remembered and loved coming across the field to bring it a lump of sugar. So Strawberry may be smarter than these uh, humans here. Uh, He kind of knows what this world is. and then you get the cabbie saying God in a cockney accent. God said the cabbie, ain't it lovely? And again, the cabbie speaks more than he probably realizes when he says God. Then two wonders happened at the same moment. One was that the voice was suddenly joined by other voices. Now, who these other voices are is going to become really, really important. Uh, maybe more important than we realized till a few years ago. Uh, we'll talk about that. Anyway, more voices than you could, you could possibly count. They were in harmony with it, but far higher up the scale, cold, tingling. Okay, when you see the word tingling in the Chronicles of Narnia, and I'll explain more of this in a moment. When you see the word tingling, if your friend was J.R.R. Tolkien, or if you were C.S. Lewis, you would know Old English. You know in Old English that tingle, G-U-L, spelled in the Old English, tingle means a star. 
So tingling is a word that references stars. Just hold on to that for a while. So, uh, yeah, the cold, tingling, silvery sound voices. The second wonder was that the blackness overhead all at once was blazing with stars. Yeah, you heard the tingling, and now you're going to know where the voices are coming from. This helping to um, sing Narnia into existence. They didn't come out gently one by one as they do on a summer evening. One moment there had been nothing but darkness. Next moment a thousand, thousand points of light leaped out. Single stars, constellations, and planets brighter and bigger than any in our world. There were no clouds. The new stars and the new voices began at exactly the same time. If you had seen and heard it as Diggory did, you would have felt quite certain that it was the stars themselves which were singing. They are. And that it was the first voice, so it's God and the stars singing, the deep one which had made them appear and made them sing. And here comes one of the most famous uh, lines from the magician's nephew. And I wish I could do it in Cockney, but I'm not even going to try. It would be better in Cockney. Glory be, said the cabbie, I'd have been a better man all my life if I'd known there were things like this. Um, yeah, the way you live your life has a lot to do with what you see that other people don't see. It has a lot to do with you knowing things other people don't know. It has a lot to do with being aware of another world. So the cabbie said, and, and by the way, the cabbie's been a really good man, very decent man. But he said, I'd have been a better man all my life if I'd known there were things like this. So this world's coming into existence. You see a picture, a sketching on page 108 by Pauline Baines of all of them watching this world being created. Now, you're not going to be surprised by the next little passage I read on 108. Look down about um, a little over halfway down. Well, let's just start with the paragraph. There was soon light enough for them to see one another's faces. The cabbie and the two children had open mouths and shining eyes. They were drinking in the sound, and they looked as if it reminded them of something. Uncle Andrew's mouth was open, too, but not with joy. He looked more as if his chin had simply dropped away from the rest of his face. His shoulders were stooped and his knees shook. He was not liking, he was not liking the voice. If he could have got away from it by creeping into a rat's hole, he would have done, done so. But the witch looked as if, in a way, she understood the music better than any of them. Remember, the, one of the best theologians in the universe is the devil. He understands Christian theology better than, than some Christians I know. Uh, we're trying to help Christians learn Christian theology. The devil knows it. Um, so here's the witch. She kind of knows what this is, what's going on, who this is, who is acting. Her mouth was shut, her lips were pressed together, and her fists were clenched. Yeah, she knows what's going on. She knows where it's coming from and who it is that's doing it, and she's mad. Ever since Andrew's just on the stupid side and unaware. Um, that's what his evil has done to him. But again, Jadis is like Andrew on steroids here. 
Ever since the song began, she had felt that this whole world was filled with a magic different from hers and stronger. Well, she's right about that. Uh, again, you've read the other book that should be read first. So you know about the, the magic and then the deeper magic. Uh, the world of Aslan is the deeper magic. Um, and, of course, she hated it. She would have smashed that whole world or all worlds to pieces if it would only stop the singing. The horse stood with its ears well forward and twitching. Uh, every now and then it snorted and stamped the ground. It no longer looked like a tired old cab horse. You can now well believe that its father had been in battles. So um, Strawberry starts taking on a, a, a glory, a nobility, a majesty. Um, Strawberry knows what's going on. Um, keep reading for a little bit more. The eastern sky changed from white to pink, from pink to gold. The voice, capital V, in case you don't know who this is, the voice rose and rose till all the air was shaking with it. And just as, as it swelled to the mightiest and most glorious sounds it had yet produced, the sun arose. Diggory had never seen such a sun. The sun above the ruins of Charn had looked older than ours, but this sun looked younger. You could imagine that it laughed for joy as it came up. Look at that image. The new sun arising on the newly created Narnia, and the sun's laughing for joy as it rises. Um, yeah, keep reading. Um, because we can do the next chapter real fast. And, and as its beams shot across the land, the travelers could see for the first time what sort of place they were in. It was a valley through which a broad, swift river wound its way, flowing eastward toward the sun. Southward there were mountains, northward there were lower hills, but it was a valley of mere earth, rock and water. There was not a tree, not a bush, not a blade of grass to be seen, that's all to come. The earth was of many colors. They were fresh, hot, and vivid. They made you feel excited until you saw the singer himself. And then you forgot everything else. So here's how you're being introduced to Aslan in this book. But you already know who he is because you you're reading them in the right order. It was a lion, huge, shaggy, and bright. It stood facing the risen sun. Its mouth was wide open in song, and it was about a hundred yards away. This is a terrible world, says the witch. We're not surprised. We must fly at once. We're not surprised. Prepare the magic. I quite agree with you, madam, says Uncle Andrew. We're not surprised. A most disagreeable place. Completely uncivilized. If only I were a younger man and had a gun. Garn said to Cabby, you don't think you could shoot him, do you? And who would? Anyway, there you got Andrew. He would just shoot the line is what he would do. Um, you're also going to see that, um, turn to the next page now. You're going, you're going to see that in chapter 9, as, um, as, as the creation continues in chapter 9, uh, the animals, the living creatures get created in, in Narnia. Um, and you also will notice Andrew, as Andrew sees all these living creatures being created, he starts thinking how he can use this world commercially. 
you know, discover a new world and plunder a new world and use it commercially and become more famous than Columbus is the way Andrew starts thinking about it. Um, sad. You see the miraculous work of God and your mind goes to your pocketbook. Um, yeah, he, he, he thought about his gun first. Now he's thinking about his pocketbook. So um, what you see here in chapter 9, um, you, you, see, you see it continuing. You see the anger of the witch, Jadis. She has the bar. She has the bar in her hand from the lamppost. She has the bar in the hand from the lamppost. And then um, you, you see that, um, again, living creatures are being created, um, which not happy. So finally, the witch throws the bar, the bar that was across the lamppost, throws the bar at Aslan, tries to harm Aslan. Um, but you know Aslan can't be harmed because why? You've read the first book. You know Aslan can't ultimately be harmed. So anyway, she throws the bar at, at the line. You notice on page 116, the bar struck the line fair between the eyes. It glanced off and fell with a thud in the grass. The line came on. It walked with neither, it, Its walk was neither slower nor faster than before. You could not tell whether it even knew it had been hit. Though its soft pads made no noise, you could feel the earth shake beneath its weight. The witch shrieked and ran. But you notice the children cannot move. They're in awe. They're all struck. Um, so Aslan doesn't even notice he's been hit by the arm of the lamppost that uh, Jadis throws at him. Um, of course, Andrew and witch, they don't like what they see. So... Um, the world comes alive. The world comes alive. Um, and again, Strawberry is very happy with all this because uh, Strawberry is going to find some, some soulmates here as the world comes alive. Uh, this is a world where uh, everything, everything comes alive and continues to flourish abundantly. As a matter of fact, you notice soon that the bar of the lamppost when it bounced off Aslan hits the ground, what does it do? It becomes like a seed, and a lamppost grows from it. And that, of course, that's the lamppost that, that marks the um, extremity of Narnia that you know from the last book. So the lamppost hits the ground and, and, and grows there in the ground, because this is a world where everything grows, where everything flourishes, um, where everything is bursting with life and growth, which again, that's why um, Andrew thinks about his commercial possibilities, you know, that he may find a way to make money on this, this strange land where you, can, where you can put a metal in the ground and it grow, it multiply. Um, you notice on page 121, because this is going to come to bear a little bit later, and at the bottom of page 120, um, Diggory starts thinking about his mother. As he's in this world where everything's coming alive and everything's flourishing, he starts thinking about his mother who is literally deathly ill back in London. So um, we'll continue on with that theme later. Anyway, the line continues to sing. Um, and you see all these, these, little, mold, these little, little mounds of dirt in the ground. They start growing up and they become animals. 
you see the sketches on page 123. You know, one of them grows into an elephant. Uh, the um, you know the elephant grows. You, you've got the uh, uh, the stags. They, they fascinated uh, the kids because when the stags began to grow, of course their antlers came out of the ground first. So it looked like uh, trees maybe coming up. But all these animals are being created. And again, everybody but Andrew and Jadis are in amazement at what they're doing. Notice on page 124 what Aslan does with the animals that are created. You got a picture of it somewhat on page 125, but on page 124 at the bottom of the first full paragraph, um, it says every now and again Aslan would go up to two of them, always two at a time and touch their noses with lip, with his lips. Um, he's doing something to them two at a time. He's breathing on them, you'll see later. Um, let me just tell you what we think this is here, because I'm going to talk about something in a moment. Um, what he's doing here is he's introducing love into Narnia. That's why he's talking to two animals at a time. You know, hopefully... Your love is not just centered on you. Not a good idea. Uh, to, to, to do love, you have to have another creature uh, that you're loving. So you see Aslan here going up to him two by two. He's introducing love uh, to, to, to Narnia. Now, with all that being said, um, we need to spend a little bit of time with how it ends. So look on the last page, chapter Chapter 9. Far overhead from beyond the veil of blue sky, which hid them, the stars sang. Back to the stars. Don't lose sight of the stars. The stars sang again. A pure, cold, difficult music. Then there came a swift flash like fire, but it burnt nobody either from the sky or from the line itself, and every drop of blood did what? Tingled. And you know why Lewis uses that word. Uh, you know better in just a few moments. And every drop of blood tingled in the children's bodies. And the deepest, wildest voice they had ever heard, uh, remember, he's not a tame lion, he, but he's good. Uh, he's not a tame lion. The deepest, wildest voice I'd ever heard was saying, Narnia, Narnia, Narnia. Awake, love, think. I wish he'd give that command to some people I know. Think, <laughs> speak, be walking trees, be talking beasts, be divine waters. Okay, let me tell you what, we, what so many of us now think we're watching here. Um, offer you something that has sort of revolutionized Chronicle of Narnia studies in recent years. Please don't try to tell your six-year-old this when you're reading the book. Just read the book. But for those of us that are older and we're paying serious attention to this, let me tell you what one of the scholars by the name of Michael Ward came up with a few years ago. 
Uh, Michael Ward is someone I know. Michael Ward is, I've, I've introduced you to him before. Michael Ward is both an Oxford and a Cambridge scholar, C.S. Lewis scholar. He was the one who brought the homily at Walter Hooper's funeral recently in Oxford. Walter Hooper was kind of the last surviving connection to C.S. Lewis. Walter Hooper from North Carolina, but he lived his whole life in Oxford, was uh, C.S. Lewis's last secretary. Uh, anyway, he died recently in his 90s. And um, uh, uh, Michael Ward was the homilist. He preached the sermon. Michael Ward is a tremendous scholar uh, on several, several levels. He's also a tremendous C.S. Lewis scholar. He came up with something years ago. And um, when, I, when I tell it to you, it's going to feel a little bit like it should come from National Enquirer. So let me go ahead and say there are a whole, whole lot of us that take it very seriously. Um, Michael Ward, when he was working on his dissertation, and he was studying the thought of C.S. Lewis studying the Chronicles of Narnia, you know, inquiring minds should say stuff like, why seven? Why not eight? Why not six? Why are they written like they're written? Is there any organizing theme that runs throughout all seven Chronicles of Narnia? Because they seem very, not very different, but fairly different when you read all seven Chronicles of Narnia. Um, Michael Ward came up with something. And again, you can go and read, or you can read his thick book, which is entitled Planet Narnia. Uh, but what he has written about became so popular, you can get a small version of the book called the Narnia Code, which that does sound like National Enquirer, doesn't it? You can get a small, abridged, simpler version called the Narnia Code, where he explains what he explained in his thick book called Planet Narnia. And this is what he, he had an aha moment because of his studying, and then he studied more and he became more convinced, saying this, here's the organizing principle behind the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, we know what C.S. Lewis did for a daytime job, right? He is a medieval Renaissance scholar of literature. So he knew medieval Renaissance literature well. He, um, uh, he, he embraced the medieval worldview. That's why he said he was a dinosaur, and he just saw the, saw the world differently than moderns see the world. Uh, he saw, by embracing a medieval worldview, and you know, that's why those of us who take history seriously just... Our brains explode when we hear this culture in which we're living talk about terrible violence, and they'll say something like, that person went medieval on that other person. Some of us are very fond of the Middle Ages. Some of us are not sure we haven't gone backwards since the Middle Ages. Anyway, but in the Middle Ages, uh, the worldview, because it, it was Christendom in the Middle Ages, there was nothing but the Christian faith in Europe of the Middle Ages. The world was enchanted in a way that it's not enchanted now. Um, give you an example, and this gets at what Michael Ward came to. Um, when the medievalists looked around at creation, when the medievalists looked at the sky, whether in the day or at night, the medievalists, like the Bible, called this the heavenlies. The medievalists knew that in the book of Job, we're told that the stars sang at creation. 
Those of you that are, are in, in a Christian church, maybe you sing Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee occasionally. It talks about the song of the spheres in that, in that hymn. Going back to the book of Job. Um, C.S. Lewis's favorite psalm was Psalm 19, which talks about how the heavens declare the glories of God. That the, that the universe is filled with song. The universe is filled with the praise of God. Uh, remember what Jesus said on his way in Jerusalem? If you folks don't praise me, these rocks will cry out. Creation understands God, the glory of God. They understand creator, creation. So the medievalist, the world that was enchanted, um, could look at everything and see God. Sometimes they could look and see the devil, but they, the world was enchanted. They didn't just look at creation and see material stuff. And one of the things C.S. Lewis hated the most was in the modern era, we quit calling it the heavenlies. And what do we call it? Space. Now, just think about that a minute. Space feels empty. Space feels dark. Space feels like where there's nothing. Yeah, if you look at the cosmos around you as space or outer space, that's a very different worldview than looking at the world around us, the cosmos, as the heavenlies. They're declaring the glory of God. That's the shift in worldview. One of the ways you can illustrate a shift in worldview from the medievalist to the moderns. So, um, C.S. Lewis was a medievalist. He was fascinated by the way the, the Christians in the Middle Ages, the world was enchanted, that's C.S. Lewis's word even, with spirituality. Everything was bursting with spiritual vitality. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote a poem. He really wanted to be a poet early on. Didn't do well. He wanted to be a poet. He thought he was going to be a poet. The very first thing he wrote right after World War I was poetry. He was sort of fascinated with poetry. He did write a poem one time talking about the planets. You can Google it. It's a poem called The Planets. Now, when C.S. Lewis wrote a poem, a lengthy poem, about the planets, he used a medieval list to talk about the planets, the seven planets of the medieval world, seven planets of the medieval world. They were um, five of the planets that we call, but their list of seven include the sun and the moon. But there's a list of seven planets that the medievalists saw, um, and, and, they, and they really thought all creation was one. All creation, creation is bursting with divine energy. It's not this world and another world. All creation is filled with the glory of God. Um, and that's why, for instance, you know what, you know what, influenza means. I mean, you know what it is, right? It's that disease we don't want. You ever know why? Why do we call it influenza? Think about it a second. It sounds a little bit. It's the Italian version of the word influence, right? So why do we call that illness? I've got the influence. Uh, you know, it's amazing how we use language and never stop to think why we do what we do. The reason you, you can get the influence is because that's the stars acting on you. So that word has even come down into influenza, flu. Um, 
So, C.S. Lewis, being a medievalist, being a medievalist with a worldview, all of creation declares the glory of God. The stars, like the book of Job says, uh, sang at creation, kind of like what you see happening with Narnia here. Um, Michael Ward had an epiphany that what is the organizing principle of the seven chronicles of Narnia are the seven planets that um, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote about in his poem, The Planets. Uh, that come, coming from the medieval list. And for instance, each one of the chronicles, and you can go read his deep book or his abridged book, each one of the chronicles, if you know what you're looking for, has one particular of those planets occurring all over the place. In the magician's nephew, it is Venus. Venus, the planet of love. Venus, which is the morning star. Venus, which is the morning star. And, of course, Jesus in Revelation 22 said, I am the what? Bright morning star. I am the bright morning star who breathes creation into existence. Um, And if you read Michael Ward's books, he finds a whole lot more examples than that in, in like, for instance, the magician's nephew concerning Venus. Um, fascinating theory. You know, when it first started coming out from Michael Ward, and Michael Ward is who sponsored and blessed the creation of our um, C.S. Lewis Society here in the Triad. When he first wrote that, because that's kind of what made him famous. He was a scholar. He was, a, he was working on his doctoral dissertation. When he first wrote that, a lot of us thought, this feels a little bit like the National Enquirer, that we're seeing all this hidden stuff in the Chronicles. Um, so when you, if you read his book, he will tell you even why C.S. Lewis did it this way. C.S. Lewis liked to hide stuff. And, and Michael Ward gave you a lot of examples of that, such as... He was married to Joy Davidman for almost a year before anybody knew it, including his closest friends like J.R.R. Tolkien. But then he he married her just to help her have have help her and her two sons have uh, legal status in England, not have to go back to her abusive alcoholic husband in the United States, ex-husband in the United States. But of course, you know the story of Shadowlands. He finally falls in love with her and does a religious ceremony and really marries her. But she was he was married to her for almost a year. So we have this precedent that he sort of liked to kind of keep things hidden. He wants you to work a little bit when you read literature. Um, and there's a lot of other examples of that. So Michael Ward now, his um, theory about the seven stars of the medieval world being the seven, uh, Prince Caspian is Mars, because Mars is the martial planet, all about warfare and battle. And, yeah, so Mars is the, is the image behind all of Prince Caspian. Uh, anyway, kind of a fascinating thing. But um, Michael Ward will go down in history among C.S. Lewis scholars because he has written about this. Most of us now say he's, he's on to something. So when C.S. Lewis uses the word tingle, when he talks about stars... When he talks about, we've talked even about one of the seven stars in medieval worldview is two of them's moon and sun. We talked about the the moon making you a, the moon lunar, making you a lunatic. We've seen that, we saw that back in the line, the witch and the wardrobe. By the way, the the planet behind the line, the witch and the wardrobe to tease you a little bit, you can go 
read it, is Jupiter, which was um, C.S. Lewis's favorite planet. That's why if you're British and you say by Jove, what have you just said? By Jupiter. Yeah, Jove's another name for Jupiter. He liked Jupiter. So Jupiter is the, the, the star, the celestial body, the planetary body behind um, um, the, um, the line, the witch, and the wardrobe. Anyway, take it for what it's worth. Um, again, don't try to convince your grandchildren of this. You'll turn them off of the, uh, of the Chronicles. But as you read it as an adult, and you may see the depth here, um, don't, don't be afraid to see the depth here. Anyway, so let's go to the Bible for a minute. I'm sure you can make a lot of connections to biblical allusions from these three chapters. As you watch Aslan, as you watch Aslan sing Narnia into existence, um, start. Let's do the most familiar first. Go to the Gospel of John, the first first chapter of the Gospel of John. Um, something that's fairly prevalent in the New Testament gets almost no attention in contemporary Christian circles. You know, in the Gospel of John, the first 18 verses are that magnificent prologue to the Gospel of John, that magnificent hymn to the Logos, the Word, the wisdom of God, who is Jesus. And then uh, the rest of the Gospel of John really just unpacks what you get in the in the first 18 verses. And you know how um, the, 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 the great... Uh, prologue begins, John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, Logos, wisdom. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's why we refer to Jesus as the Word, the Logos, the wisdom of God incarnate. He, so the he here is the Word, Jesus, the Logos. He, Jesus, was in the beginning with God. Again, when they knock on your door and they tell you that 300 years after Jesus, we invented the Trinity. Tell them to read the book. He was in the beginning with God. Jesus didn't start in the year 4 B.C. when he became incarnate of the Virgin Mary there in Bethlehem. There has never been a time when Jesus didn't exist. There's never been a time... More specifically, there's never been a time when the second person of the Godhead didn't exist. So he, Jesus, the Word, Logos, he was in the beginning with God. But verse 3 is what I want you to see. All things came into being through him. And without him, not one thing came into being. Um, What has come into being in him was life, and the life was light of all people. You can keep reading. So when we refer to Jesus as the Logos, the Word, the wisdom of God, and we say that God spoke creation into existence by his Word, we're saying Jesus was the agent of creation. So yeah, if you think you just showed up in the year 4 B.C. during the reign of Augustus Caesar and Herod in Judea there when he was born of a virgin in Bethlehem, we need to have a theological discussion. 
Um, the second person of the Godhead is as eternal as the first person of the Godhead, who, has, is, who is as eternal as the third person of the Godhead. Trinity is in the Bible. Even if the word's not there, the concept is there. So Jesus is the agent of creation. Um, not the only time that's mentioned in the New Testament. Look at, um, go find your way to the book of Colossians. Go east. Get into the letters of Paul. Find Colossians comes after Philippi, Philippians, letter to the church of Philippi. Um, again, you, you know, most Christians, particularly in this culture, need to embrace a much more exalted image of Jesus than what the contemporary world has led them to. So look at Colossians. Paul's writing to the church at Colossae. Took a group one time to Colossae. It's a pile of dirt. That's all that's there now. It was really anticlimactic to see the pile of dirt that used to be the city of Colossae. Anyway, it was a thriving city in Paul's day. He wrote a letter to the church of Colossae. In chapter 1, look at beginning at verse 15. He's trying to teach these people about Jesus. So the he here is Jesus. Colossians 1.15. He is the image. Actually, the word there is icon which now you know even if you're not Greek Orthodox because of computers, he is the image, the icon of the invisible God. That's who Jesus is. He is the image, the icon of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation, first in primacy. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were what? Created. Most contemporary Christians know he's Lord. They know he's Savior. They don't seem to understand he's creator. He is the agent of creation. He is the word that sang creation into being. Um, For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things that have been created have been created through him, by through him and for him. Anyway, so there's another one. Let me give you one more in case you have somehow missed the Sunday school lesson about Jesus being creator. Uh, Book of Hebrews, keep going east. Uh, The book of Hebrews comes after all of the letters of Paul. The reason it comes after all of the letters of Paul was there was some thought for a little while in the history of the church that Hebrews was written by Paul. We now know it was not written by Paul. It doesn't claim to be written by Paul. It sounds like when you read Hebrews in the Greek and you read Paul in the Greek, it's like putting Shakespeare beside William Faulkner. Different author. Different author. Um, but you're not told who wrote Hebrews. So even when the canon was put together, um, even though some people thought Hebrews was written by Paul, most people still had serious doubt because it's not claimed to be written by Paul. And that's why it is. it comes at the end of all of other Paul's letters because so, it's not Paul. But anyway, look at, look at the letter of the Hebrews, chapter 1. Another one of these majestic, grand sweep of history and creation statements in the Bible. Chapter 1, verse 1. The author wants you to get the big picture before you narrow it down. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways. You know, prophets, scripture, burning bush, whatever. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. But in these last days, 
The last days are the season between first coming of Christ and second coming of Christ. But in these last days, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his ultimate, premier, predominating revelation, his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the worlds. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. And he sustains all things. Think about him blowing in the faces of the animals, two by two. He sustains all things. Uh, sustains all things by his powerful word. So, Redeemer, uh, Lord, Savior, and Creator. So, you know, when you're watching Aslan create, C.S. Lewis kind of assumes you've read, you know, the really important book. And you see the connections there. Uh, Jesus is the Word, the Logos. He is the agent God used to create. So, that's enough. Um, yeah, it gets more and more interesting as it goes. I hope you're seeing all of the humor in this book. Uh, C.S. Lewis. Uh, um, actually, Mrs. Moore had been dead for several years. Mrs. Moore was... The old, old lady, that's a whole nother story. Mrs. Moore was the old, old lady that he took care of for 30 years. Whole nother story. Who particularly became very hard to take care of late in, in her life. But Jack Lewis took care of her because he made a promise to his friend when they went to World War I together. If either one of us dies, the other one will take care of the other one's family. Well, Patty Moore died and left his mother. In the end of, in the end of her life, she, um, she was probably never an easy lady. Um, there's all, we know that. But, end, but anyway, she finally dies, and Jack loved her. We're still trying to figure out what all that means. Jack loved her, uh, but she finally does die, and his life got much, much better. So that's why I think you, by the time you see this book being written compared when the Lion, of the Witch, and Wardrobe is being written, she's still kicking. And he's still taking care of her. But by the time this book's written, I, I feel a relaxed spirit in Jack Lewis at this point. You find more humor here. Life is a little better, a little easier for him. Most of us stand in amazement that he wrote as much as he wrote with Mrs. Moore there for 30 years. Warney, who never quite understood it either, the brother that lived with Jack, Warney said that Jack could never go for more than 30 minutes in his writing, in his reading, without Miss Moore screaming for something. And he did it. But that's, that's one of the reasons Walter Hooper said, that guy that just died recently who was the last secretary of C.S. Lewis, that's why Walter Hooper described C.S. Lewis as the most converted person he ever met. So he was a, yeah, even his patients had gotten converted by Christ. And he dealt with Mrs. Moore. Anyway, um, I hope you see the humor in this chronicle. It's not in all, all the chronicles. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for our time together. We thank you for the ways that you reveal yourself to us. We thank you for creation. We thank you for the ways that, that all of creation sings your glory. All of creation bears witness to your glory. And we're so grateful for creation, but God, we also know that Jadis and Andrew are loose in creation. 
So thank you for your work of creation. Thank you for your work of recreation in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Go in peace. Keep reading. I can't believe we're getting close to the end of the summer.